996. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. The Bible reads, All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All right, good morning. It's really good to be with you all again. Uh, around this time last year, I was saying my goodbyes uh, from, from, an, from my internship, and I'm really glad for this time to not be goodbye, but really more of just a thank you. It's been a great past couple of months being here so far, and I've just loved every second of it. Um, getting to talk with all of you, getting to share those conversations, fellowship, your delicious cooking, thank you. Uh, all, all of those things I've greatly appreciated. And in particular, too, I want to mention that I've really appreciated getting to know our elders better. They are just such kind and compassionate people who are just shepherding the souls in this congregation. And, and I want to, to also say to John and Jordan to just thank both of them. Uh, I tried to go over this in practice how I would say this about probably about five times last night and it never came out right, but um, I have been blessed not just with great mentors in them, not just great teachers in them, but great, great friends just in how they have not only helped me when I'm standing behind the pulpit, but they've helped me in the type of person to be when I'm not standing behind the pulpit as well. Um, they're, they're, they're deeply invested in me, and I just cannot thank them enough for, for all that they've done thus far. And really, the point of all of this is to say thank you for your warm welcome, and I'm really looking forward to many, many more um, days, months, and years with all of you um, as, we, as we labor in the kingdom together. When I'm not in my complete introvert mode where I just freeze up and forget everything that I would say otherwise, one thing that you may know about me is that I really, really love literature. Um, within that, I've really taken an interest in teaching AP literature, and I, I've been doing that online for the past five years or so. And of course, one of the first topics that comes up is what literature even is. Fair question, right? Um, and with that, generally what I tell them is that literature is writing that has themes and ideas that stand irrespective of time and culture. That is to say, themes that outlive the person who wrote the book in question. It's so a few personal favorites of mine. I think about Othello by William Shakespeare. In my opinion, best play he ever wrote. It's this whole story just about a man's fall that comes by listening to the wrong voices. And really, you could say it's a play that's about discernment and what happens when a person's unwilling to discern the voices they're hearing. Another book that I grew to love, especially during college, it's written by Kazuo Ishiguro and it's called The Remains of the Day. And it's this book about the dangers of blind loyalty, blind subservience, and you could say again, it's just about loyalty. Once again, a theme that, that can easily be connected to. And a third that's just more of a personal favorite, I love all the Sherlock Holmes books, but there's something about A Study in Scarlet, that very first one that I just love. And within that, you could say that that's a story about the consequences of love gone wrong. And really, it's a story about revenge. All three of those stories that I've mentioned all have some ideas that we can latch onto and, and that will never become outdated, right? Because the, the author was aware of what was going on and was aware of what would still be going on in the future. So they didn't make something that would be outdated because these ideas 
outlast even them. But it may not shock you to hear me say that the Bible did it first. And as a matter of fact, the Bible did it even better. See, the title of this lesson is There's No Book Like the Bible. I'm not even going to take credit for that. John gave me that, and that, was, that, that just described this perfectly as I was going through my outline with him. But there is really no book like the Bible. None of those books that I've mentioned, no book that I could mention in, in all of my, of my lackluster English major wisdom could ever come close to this book. Even from a literary standpoint, if we just start there, you're saying that we have 40 different authors that create a thematically and doctrinally unified composite work that's rich in every conceivable way. But that's not what we're talking about. I'm not teaching a literature class here. What we're going to talk about is the fact that there are three specific distinctives, three distinct aspects, three distinct aspects I'm sorry, of scripture that just no other book can claim. And again, we're not breaking new ground. These points are going to be very simple, but again, I think they're worth our, they're worth our, our study today. We're going to talk about the author of Scripture, its purpose, and its theme. To put it bluntly, those are going to be the three things that we talk about. The fact that the Bible is authored by God, that the Bible draws us to God, and that finally the Bible restores us to God. It's in those three distinctives that Scripture is unparalleled and incomparable to any other book that could be mentioned. Again, as fun as studying literature is, there's a certain point where we have to, to stop looking at the Bible as just a book. And we have to look at it as what it truly is, the Word of God. So we're going to start with the authorship of Scripture, that the Bible is authored by God. Uh, Jeremiah 23 and verse 29 shows us that the Bible, the Word of God is like, is like fire. It even says that it's like a, a rock-breaking hammer, right? And, I, and I'm, I'm reluctant to say that the Bible is dynamite, but what I am willing to say is that the Bible is powerful, that the Word of God is powerful. But there are a few questions that come from that, especially nowadays, which of course there's nothing new under the sun, but there have been some particular critiques made in the past 400 years that maybe we wouldn't have heard as frequently before. And of these questions, all three of them that we're going to talk about briefly concern the power of God's word and whether it is limited by its form. The first of those questions being, is God's word less powerful because it is written? That seems like a really weird question, but follow me here. You have an employer and say that that employer needs you to come in to work for that day when you were planning to take a day off. I know, I'm, I'm already hearing the silent groans. But in that type of situation, what's going to catch the, the employee's attention more? When the employer sends a text saying like, hey, we, we need you, we're slammed, we're, we're out of pizza dough, we need you to come in. I'm pretty sure that you'd probably just, you know, put the phone down and not look at it. Again, I. When I worked at Papa Murphy's, I know for a fact I did that a couple of times. <laughs> now, what would happen instead if my manager called me, which he did a couple of times? And when that would happen, then, of course, I have to actually be ready to speak to him. And I wasn't going to formulate some excuse, but I couldn't run away anymore because I had to take him seriously because that's his voice, right? Now, what if we took it a step further and for some reason he came to my house See, it starts beating on the door. It's like, we really need you to come into work today. Then it's serious, right? We have this built-in um, built aspect of all of us now where we don't take people's words as seriously if they're just written, right? Where we don't always connect the, the thing that has been authored to its author if we can't physically see the author. That puts us Christians in a very 
interesting predicament, as many would say, because we claim that the Bible is the word of God, but we can't physically see him. So does that make the Bible any less powerful? Let's go for a second to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. We're going to try and answer this question just straight from God's word. Are God's words less powerful because they are written? Let's see what Peter has to say. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So what is he talking about? The exact statement that he said is from Matthew 17 and verse 5. We're referencing the transfiguration event here, where they did indeed hear the voice from heaven. They heard the voice of God. And, and, and that's powerful, but see what he goes on to say. And we have prophetic word more fully confirmed, more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What are you talking about, Peter? Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation or origin, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I'm not making this up. This is what Peter is saying. He was there at the transfiguration. He was there and heard the voice of God, and yet he's still saying we have it more fully confirmed now, and he talks about scripture. Is it extreme for me to just make the point that Peter is making? That scripture is considered even more powerful than even the, or more clear, I should say, than even God's voice being physically heard from heaven. Are God's words, words less powerful because they are written? I don't think so. It's the same reasoning that we, that we can then go to 1 Corinthians 13 with. And when we look in verses 9 through 10 and really the whole chapter, the, the chapter, yes, is about love. I don't deny that for a bit. What he goes on to talk about is these different ways in which revelation from God has been given to mankind. And what he says in verse 9 is that we prophesy in part. But what does he go on to say in verse 10? That when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. That is to say that when these partial means of revelation are gone, that's going to be because the perfect form of revelation has come. Are God's words less powerful because they are written? Absolutely not. And again, I'm not reading something into this. This is simply what is presented in the text. Are God's words less powerful than perhaps because they are written words? Are God's less powerful because they are written words that are presented by men? This is another common one that we hear, I think, or at least one that I've heard a lot. And what commonly comes up is, well, you're claiming that this is the word of God, but there were clearly fallible men who were involved in presenting it, imperfect men who were in need of the same gospel that they're preaching. How can it be that they wrote these words? 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13 puts it pretty bluntly. It says, and we, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. Are God's words less powerful because they're presented by men? Well, Paul seems to say no. Let's even go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 for a moment, and it, and it, and it ideologically elaborates on this. 
1 Corinthians chapter 2, 12 through 13. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. We're going to go to verse 14 in this chapter a little bit later, but once again, the point is, the Holy Spirit has given these individuals the words to say. I need to be very clear in saying that this is not just a spirit-inspired message, but it's spirit-uttered spirit words, right? Every word has been inspired of God, and we ought to take that very seriously. But I think one, le one last question that tends to come up here, are God's words less powerful because they are, quote-unquote, before our time? Are they, quote-unquote, before our time, and does that make God's word less powerful? Let's see what Josiah has to say about that. Let's go to 2 Kings chapter 22. 2 Kings chapter 22. Now, by this point, the book of the law has been lost in, uh, in God's house. Uh, strangely enough, they ended up just completely losing track of it, not giving it any regard. And when the book is found, Josiah says, Josiah says this in verse 14, first of all, go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do, all, to, to do according to all that is written concerning us. Are God's words less valuable, less powerful because they are before our time? When Josiah was acquainted with this book in verse 11, the text says that he tore his clothes he knew that because they had not been giving due reverence to the word of God, following the same admonition that was given in Joshua 1 and verse 8, because they weren't following that principle, this was the situation they were in. And they knew the only way to restoration would be through the word of God. Another example that I'll mention even briefly is from Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, verses 13 through 15, and what happens there is the disciples are plucking grain and they are, they're eating on the Sabbath. Now, there's a misunderstanding that the Pharisees have that they're now going to try and push towards the disciples and say that they are violating the Sabbath because of what they're doing. What Jesus proceeds to show them is that, first of all, they are not violating the Sabbath, but even if they were, he's going to expose their bias. So he mentions David, who did legitimately violate the Sabbath. And through, and through Matthew 12, 13 through 5, sorry, 3 through 5, what, what we find is very clearly um, the Pharisees were being biased. They were, they were not judging with righteous judgment. They were being partial. He ultimately tells them, well, if you had studied these scriptures, you would know that what my disciples are doing isn't wrong. What would Jesus' answer be to this whole question of if God's word is less powerful because it's quote-unquote before our time? I don't, I don't think he would respond in the way that many others would. The fact that the Bible is authored by God allows any earthly criticism of its nature and its timeliness to be considered null and void. And once again, the Bible is, is God's word, and it's not just the spirit-inspired message, it's spirit-uttered words. We need to remember that. Every word we need to take very, very seriously. So that's the author. That's the author of, of Scripture and why that matters. But what's the purpose of Scripture? The Bible draws us to God. That's our second point. The Bible draws us to God. Its purpose ultimately is calling calling that it calls us 
From 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4, what we find is that God desires for all men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. And I think that first part we know very well, but that second part, sometimes we don't give as much due attention. God desires for everyone to have knowledge of the truth. God wants us all to have knowledge of him. And there were a couple of points that sure there will be some due clarification, but I also just want to see what the text actually just has to say. We go to Romans 8, verse, verse, verses 29 through 30. The first point that we want to cover here is that, is that we are drawn by God. We're going to talk about exactly how that happens, right? But we are drawn by God according to the scriptures. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We are drawn by God. Everything that we do, our study, our worship, everything that we do in relation to God is because God acted first. The fact that we are able to even find God is because he created us to do so. But let's get more specific here. How exactly is it that we are drawn by God? And we're going to go to John chapter 6 for this. John 6, verses 44 through 45. This is in very much a, a follow-up to, to what happened when Jesus fed everyone there, fed the 5,000, and there's been a little bit of, um, of pushback that, that's come upon Jesus because of some comments that he's made about he himself being the bread that came from heaven. Here's what verses 44 through 45 say. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. We're not talking about um, what many of our religious friends might say the phrase drawn by God means. We're going to come back to John chapter 6 later even, but what we find even now is that God calls people by his message. And again, the end of the chapter makes that even more abundantly clear, but, but we know that it is ultimately the message of God that draws us to him. And just on that, let's just go over the fact, too, that we are drawn by his message. We are drawn by his message. If we just go to the very end of John, or near the very end of John, in John chapter 20, Verse 30 through 31 make the entire purpose of this book abundantly clear. What he says is, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We are drawn by the message of God to God. That's not something that we're trying to make up. What it's very, what's very clear from the text is that that is indeed how God call, draws us to him. It's through the message. And if we listen to him, if we're only obedient to hear what the Spirit says to us in his, in his word, we will follow him. And we're aware that not everyone does, but the ideal goal is for all men to be saved. Let's go even to 2 Thessalonians for a moment as well. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If I myself could find it, that could be even better. <laughs> Verse 13 through 15. 
But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit, one, and belief in the truth, two. Both of these things matter. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Verse 15 could have easily been put in the authored by God part of all of this. But what does he say in verse 14 very clearly? He called you through our gospel. So once again, presented by men, but nevertheless, there is a calling from God that still comes from that. And again, when we look in verse 15, how do we answer the question of whether God's word is more or less powerful because of its written form? It's very clear, whether it's spoken or written, you should take it just as seriously. There's such a, a fascination today with the idea that God is directly speaking to people. There's even um, the, the, the verses in the Old Testament in, in 1 Kings that's often taken to say that we have to just listen for this whisper. I am not trying to just to step on anyone's toes really other than mine, but let me just say that, that that's not how we should think about this. That is simply not a true view. What we find is that the word of God is God's means of communicating with us. And we need to take that very seriously. So once again, it is through the teaching of God that we are drawn to God. But what's the theme of scripture? Our purpose and theme the same thing? Not really. Purpose is more about a goal, whereas theme is more the, the point. What is the point of Scripture? And yes, it, yes, it, Jesus is correct. I'm not, I'm not against that. But furthermore, the theme of the Bible is restoration. The theme of the Bible is restoration. The Bible restores us to God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, which was read by Alex Warlow a moment ago, it, it makes it very clear that the word of God can complete us. But how exactly does that completion come? That's the question that I really want to focus on in this third and final point. When I was at Peach Valley recently, I, I was able to, to teach the, the, the older boys, and one thing that we talked about was that we can't just expect the word to complete us by osmosis. We have to actually do some things to allow it to complete us. Even in verse 15 in that same chapter, what Paul says is these scriptures are, are able to make you wise. He does not say it happens automatically. So, so let's just break down. How exactly does this happen? Well, we're going to put this in three parts. We're going to say that number one, the word of God will only complete us if we read it. If we read it, that seems so easy to understand, but I'm going to say it anyway, and I'm going to emphasize it anyway. Second, we know that the Bible will only complete us if we believe it. And third, the Bible will only complete us if we obey it. It's through those three things that the word makes us complete. It's, it's not just through, well, I looked at it today, I turned to a random verse, and, and now I have my edification for the day. Again, I'm not making fun of anybody. I, I'm the one who used to do that. I'm pointing fingers at myself here. That that's not how real study happens. So first of all, the Bible makes one complete if we read it. 
if we read it. Nehemiah 9 and verse 3, I am aware that this is a very different context happening here, but I want us to note the reverence given to the word of God and the, and the subsequent worship of God. And the people of Israel stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of, the, of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. A quarter of the day, they were standing, I would have to imagine probably in hot weather of some kind, but I'm not sure. And they were listening to the word of God. They were reading the word of God. I know that our culture is very different. In many ways, we're, we're a just go, go, go culture. We're running from, from work to other appointments to the next thing to the next thing. I, I get it. And I'm certainly not saying that I study nearly as much as I should. But what I do want to say very clearly is that we do have to read it. There is nothing that is happening to you throughout the entirety of the day, whether it be work, school, otherwise, that is more important than you going into the Word of God and studying. I'm, I'm not trying to be, to be unkind. I'm just trying to be truthful with everyone here. If there is anything that is coming between you and studying the Bible, you need to drop it. If your schedule is so busy that you can't say the word of God, you need to let something go. Ephesians 3 and verse 4, when, when Paul says that when you read this, when you read the words that I've written, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now, we know what he, what he is explicitly saying there, but what is he implying there? In order to perceive his insight into the mystery of Christ, you have to read the letter. We have to actually read it in order to, to gain this knowledge. Again, it's not just going to be through osmosis. We have to actually take the time and read through it. But second to that, we have to believe it as well. Sure, there are many people who read the word rather diligently, but their purposes are not sound. Their purposes for reading are not right. There are many who read the word of God every single year just to find more arguments against this inspiration. And that's not what we're talking about. I'm also not trying to say that if you just read it, it's all going to be okay. I think it is just as important to know how to read the word of God even than just reading it itself. I mean, that's the point of 2 Timothy 2.15 is rightly interpreting, rightly handling the word of truth. And he goes on to mention false teachers in that chapter for a reason. They're not doing that. Even 2 Peter 3.16, we see that there's opportunity to twist the scriptures to one's own gain, but ultimately to their own destruction, right? I told you we'd come back to John chapter 6. We're going to be at the very end of that chapter, uh, verses 63 through 65. We have to believe the word of God. And, and, and here's what Jesus says there, just to further elaborate on what we were talking about earlier. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. He says, you are not believing in my words. And this is what I was talking about by saying that the Father has to draw you. It is very simple. 
We are called through the message of God and it's through that that we have the choice of whether we're going to obey it or not, whether we're going to believe it. That is entirely up to us. Another chapter that we'll go back to for a moment is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I told you we'd come back to these. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. We just talked about how these things that Paul is writing are not just things taught by human wisdom, but by, but by the Spirit himself. And here's what he goes on to say in verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Is he saying there the natural person cannot accept Cannot understand? Is that what he's saying? Absolutely not. He's saying does not accept. It's a choice. It's a choice. We are able to interpret the word of God, but we can't rightly interpret it if we don't read it and we don't even believe it. And that also concerns having the right attitude when we read it. James 1, 19 through 21 talks about this abundantly, but just making sure that we are not approaching the word of God with all this anger and hostility and skepticism, but coming to it with reverence, coming to it with meekness. Sure, if someone is searching for truth, then sure. But if they are really searching for truth, if they're really trying to discover the truth of God's word, they're going to find it. But finally, none of this really matters if someone doesn't obey the word of God. If we don't obey it, then all of this is pointless. In Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, uh, Paul starts talking about this new life the Gentiles were called to. He says this phrase in there that this is not the way you learned Christ, as in not putting off the old self and putting on the new self. Putting on Christ, learning Christ, is meaning to take off all of these worldly, earthly layers by your own volition. We have to obey the word of God. And James 1, 20 through 25 makes that also clear that we have to be doers and not just hearers of the word. If we just hear it, then we're like a man who stares at himself intently in the mirror, but when he comes away, he forgets what he was even like. And so he urges us, don't just be a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. And this goes so far beyond just baptism, even though we're going to extend the invitation. This is so much more than that. In what areas am I not simply submitting and obeying, submitting to and obeying the word of God? The only way I can find those things out is if I study. Expecting God, expecting his word to complete you without actually studying what he has said, you're using a flashlight with no batteries. You're needing a campfire, but you have no wood. You are literally making the worst mistake that you can. I mean, just last night, uh, we were, uh, I was with, um, I was with a, a few particular visitors that, may, that many of you already know are here, but, um, but we were trying to use the, the air fryer that I was recently gifted, and I didn't have foil paper. And, and that's a pretty big deal. You shouldn't just like put your food items there without foil paper, right? I couldn't use the air fryer because I would mess it up if I didn't have foil paper. And I didn't. I had like one little sheet and that wasn't going to cut it. That is such an overly simplistic example. But what I'm trying to say is if you don't have the right tools, you cannot expect to be able to properly utilize the word of God. You, you can't. If we can understand that with simple things like flashlights and air fryers, we can certainly understand that with something as significant as the word of God, right? 
First Peter 1 verses 22 through 25 are beautiful words that describe what the word of God is able to do. Verses 22 through 25, Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the, gra- of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains temporarily for a couple minutes. No, forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. That quote from Isaiah 40 tells us everything we need to know. I could have just gotten up here and read that, and something would have been learned. But my point in all of this, as we, as we conclude, is that we must take Bible study more seriously. There's nothing throughout the day that's more important through studying the Word of God. What we do together on Sunday, when we come together, we open the Word of God and we study together. And I, I say this as someone who, who was this way, so again, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. This is, this is more at myself than anything. This should not be the only time we do this. This should not be the only time that we're opening the word of God and giving it diligent study. What we do on Sunday and Wednesday should be really a supplement of what we're already doing throughout the week. Even though there are special things that we are doing on Sunday, I don't deny that. The discipline of studying the word of God, the discipline of meditating on the word of God, it cannot be overstated. How can I pray for God's will to be done, Matthew 5 and verse 10, if I don't even know what God's will is? How can I teach others the truth if I don't even know the truth? That's the problem in Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, right? If John 14 and verse 15 tells me that if I love my Lord, I must keep his commandments, how can I keep commandments I don't even know? And when John 12, 48 tells me that the judgment will be by God's word, how in the world will I prevail in that judgment if I don't even know what the word says? If I don't even know the standard by which I will be judged, how is that going to fare for me? The individuals in Acts chapter 2 were cut to the heart, Acts uh, Acts 2.37 says, when they heard the message that Peter preached. I want us to understand more than anything that these are not just words, these are spirit-uttered words. Ephesians 6.17 shows that the sword of the spirit is the word of God, and we ought to take it very seriously. And to just add another question, how can the scripture cut us to the heart if we don't even allow it to? I think one of the greatest ways that we can disrespect God is if we fail to hold to the written word of God, if we fail to even study it, there's a level of disrespect that we're giving God, I fear, that we ought to really consider. Now, let me be very clear here. I'm not up here criticizing intentions. I know that life happens. I know that there are times where we are fully set on reading the word of God and things just happen and we're busy. I'm not criticizing intentions. What I am saying 
What I am trying to lovingly say is this. Intentions without action are just intentions. I think God takes that very, very seriously. If you've heard nothing else today, please hear that God wants to be able to have a relationship with you. As we extend heaven's invitation, the big part of this is that we have the opportunity to be restored to God. Again, if we read, believe, and obey the word of God. Maybe you're here today and maybe this is all new to you. That's okay. It was new to me too. Maybe there's something that we can talk with you about. Or maybe you just need prayers. Or perhaps you're here and you've never heard about the kingdom of God. Maybe you need to know more about what the church is and really, more importantly, who Jesus is, who the person who bled and died for the church is. If you need to know more about God, we want to help you. And if you need to be baptized for remission of your sins, we want to give you that opportunity. If you have any need at all, please come forward now as we stand and sing. Our scripture reading this morning.